Uh, this this show is called Football Gods. Uh, we all came, came up earlier today, so we'll be doing it on uh, winging it somewhat with two things that we all, if we were in charge, if we could change anything in football, it's very flexible that we, you know, would change in football. What these were the changes we would make. Uh, I could have come up with about two hundred. I've tried not to talk about VAR, though Andrew's uh, spoiler alert may slightly deal with that. Uh, just saying getting rid of VAR, I think we're all bored of talking about it at the moment. Do either of you two want to go first, or do you want me to go first with my hot takes? Do you have a preference? Uh, I'm easy. I think Science. as the host and on and the big day, I think it would be fitting if you went first, Howard. Okay, well, I'm really not sure about this one, but here goes. So, you've seen my choices, have you not, in a DM? Yes. Indeed. And you looked at my first one and thought, yeah, what's he talking about? So, my first choice, I'm going a bit McGraw Delaney on you, uh, is it's a total (laughs) fantasy thing, basically. It cannot happen. It's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen. It's just something I think could be a good thing and that thing is to strip money out of top flight football or football the premier league and so on now obviously having said that i better explain myself and you also understand that football the biggest sport in the world the biggest league in the biggest sport in the world is going to be dominated by football for the rest uh, dominated by money and billionaires for the rest of our lives it's that simple it's not going to change uh A bit of where I'm coming from with this angle is about the stress of being a Manchester City fan. And some fans will be listening to that going, what earth are you talking about? How can it be stressful following one of the best sides in the world? But I think it is quite stressful because the bar is so high that, as you saw against Brentford, a defeat, one defeat, can feel like the end of the world to many fans. There is an incessant need to win football matches all the time to win trophies and the way City have been portrayed because of their wealth I mean it shouldn't matter what other fans think of course we decide how happy we can be about City's success and every victory they get but there is a feeling that winning everything is still only a par score I think and I'm coming from the angle of famine after feast in that I can say this now because we've won loads of stuff over the last decade and more, even if Champions League isn't one of them. I think football will be better when there's a level playing field in that it would remove the stress of being a City fan because expectations would be a lot lower. So if a team could come up like in the old days, perhaps very old days, like Nottingham Forest, and have an equal chance of winning the league, or Crystal Palace could have an equal chance of winning the league as City, if it's done on... Recruitment, not on how much you spend. If it's just done, and it, there's lots of variety on who's successful. There's dips, you know, there's troughs, there's high points for teams, and there's a lot of variety in who wins the league. We would lower our expectations as City fans because we are not expected to win anything anymore. And perhaps when we have that successful period, which hopefully would come at some point, it would mean even more than it does now. And don't get me wrong, it means a lot to me right now anyway. So when you get rid of tribalism as well would be my argument because ultimately I'm tired of being a City fan. It's absolutely exhausting (laughs) if you go on social media being a City fan. 
And I wish I could just not go on social media, but until Elon Musk completely destroys it, I'm addicted to it. I want to go on a lot of the time, and I get a lot from it, uh, you know, away from football and within football. But imagine if we weren't owned by billionaires, we weren't, I have to have discussions about human rights. If we didn't have uh, broadsheet writers or whoever writing about how anti-competitive football, if everyone had, didn't have money, if everyone's doing by the same rules, I think tribalism would die off a bit. I think football would be better for it. And of course, the current situation is not City's fault. They've just taken advantage of it. It's a rich man's world. That's what it is. And I think we might actually get back to some decent discourse in football again between sets of fans if it was like the old days. Am I talking absolute nonsense, Joe and Andrew? (laughs) Or can you see the merits, having now won some stuff, of a world like this existing? So as an American who our sports leagues uh, are not far off of your kind of idea and principle here of there's a level playing field in that every you know team kind of has the same amount of money there's revenue sharing having a richer owner doesn't necessarily uh, impact your ability to compete hmm. you know i think there are some things that are are interesting but i've i've done the numbers and it actually there are not a dissimilar number of winners of say the super bowl um in the time period the premier league has existed as compared to how many teams have won the premier league yeah even though the amount of money and the like competitiveness is not technically um, different. I still don't think it's a bad idea to remove the competitiveness or the like to level the playing field, but I do think the idea that uh, it would change the discourse slash get rid of tribalism is crazy because uh, <laughs> optimistic. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, you know we it's not like we all are great friends over here in terms of our our fandoms. So I I don't know that that would remove that. I do think though that you are right that it would make sport more enjoyable. Um, and it would mean that everyone could hope for roughly the same outcome at the beginning of the season, not meaning that, you know, there's going to be peaks and troughs and some teams will be successful longer. Yeah. Um, but the, I think the one issue here is that you could never get all of the leagues to agree to this. Oh, no. I'm, and it's, a, I'm, yeah. it's pure fantasy. It's pure fantasy. I'll never mention oh, it Oh, no, again. I know. But it's, <laughs> it, this, is one of the, this is one of these things where I think truly you can't even... Like, I, I, even fantasy world, I'm just like, I, rich people are going to rich people. So. Yeah, oh, yeah. Can, can I ask that, just before I ask Joe his views, if there's any merits to it? The worst team in the NFL... This, I don't watch American sports much. Uh, yeah. I've tried the Super Bowl. <laughs> I've tried, and then the first adverts come on, and I'm like, I'm going to bed. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the worst team in the NFL this season, let's say, is it quite achievable for them to come the best within a couple of years due to the system in which they operate? I mean, I, I don't want to say it's you know easy, but it is theoretically achievable because if you were the worst team in the NFL this season, you will get the first draft pick. And if there is the right, I mean, part of the issue is, is in the NFL because of the way that the, the sport is structured. There are some positions that are worth more than others. Yeah. And talent 
at those positions is not equally distributed. So the quarterback, um, who kind of, I would say, the most similar way you could describe it is the type of role that KDB plays where you're the creator and you are the kind of the engine of creation. Um, you need a really good quarterback to win. And so you may get lucky. My NFL team, the Indianapolis Colts, in the 90s drafted a guy named Peyton Manning who went on to be one of the all-time greats and play for them for over a decade. Um, and we were incredibly successful. And since he has retired, we have been nowhere near as successful. They were really bad when they got to draft him because they had the number one draft pick. Um, and within three or four years, they were suddenly a perennial like playoff contender and yeah. always had hopes of maybe going to the Super Bowl. So it's it's possible, but it also would mean fundamentally restructuring the way that you guys think about the sport. Okay. Yeah. And I say, not happening. Changing mindset as well as logistics is probably just as difficult, basically. Uh, Joe, we'll have to move on soon because we've only got 10 minutes for each of these, though we can go over schedule. It's not a problem. Uh, Joe, do, does my idea, does, can you imagine a world beyond yeah, money that could be enjoyable for you as a City fan? Could you take not winning as many trophies? Yeah, I think um, anyone, and prob probably even picking up on the, the last podcast I did, I am somewhat of a football traditionalist, despite being a a baby of the Premier League boom era. Um, I would love an era where you had clubs like Derby County, uh, Ipswich Town, Nottingham Forest, you know, grand old clubs um, coming into the, the first division as it was and competing. Um, but I think, obviously, realistically, that came to an end of the day. Uh, clubs decided to stop divvying out the... Uh, I think it was the ticket gate revenue money um, evenly, which essentially created, you know, the, the birth of the pyramid as we see today. Um, but yeah, I, I would be up for it and I'd be willing to sacrifice some of the success for the general health of, of the game. Um, I always say I'm not a lover of, of how um, elite football is structured. I'm a lover of how City um, have now gamed the system to the point where we're the top dogs in said system. Uh, but I'm not a fan of how the system came to be and the and the um, you know the handshaking in smoke room smoke filled rooms to to form breakaway Premier Leagues and Champions Leagues and and divvy up all the cash. So if there could be a way of alleviating and eliminating that um, and making the game um, you know fairer across the board and, and more competitive, I think that would be great for the overall health of the game. Indeed. Unfortunately. Where there is capitalism and where there is sport and where they collide uh, is very unlikely to <laughs> to ever happen. I As I guess. said, I've started with a fantasy choice that's never going to happen. Uh, yeah. In fact, my second one isn't either, as you'll find out later. <laughs> Even though it, it, at least it's possible to happen without destroying the sport. Yeah, say destroying the sport. Some people would think taking money out is destroying the sport. But let's move on then. Uh, I'll choose. I'll go alphabetical order. Andrew, uh, do you want to choose... Your first yes. two things that you will change in the game. Yes. So I um, will start with my least likely to ever happen um, <laughs> because you would need to convince all of the big clubs to risk uh, their sweet, sweet Champions League revenue more. Hmm. But um, it, you know, Howard, based on what you, you said about not being familiar with American sports, are you familiar with the concept of March Madness? Kind of, yeah. Is that basketball? Yeah, so it's college basketball. It's, it's in my opinion, the the best uh, American sports tournament we have where 
every March, the top 64 teams in college basketball compete over the course of a month to crown the champion of college basketball in a single game knockout tournament. Um, so my idea is to take the Champions League and not do single game, do home and away. Um, but the ch domestic champion of every of all 55 um, Europe or UEFA member associations, the Europa League, or sorry, I put Europa League, the previous Champions League winner, uh, unless that person is also the domestic champion of the past year, and then it would be the Europa League. And then the winners of the eight highest rated domestic cup competitions in UEFA oh. would all be entered <laughs> yeah. into a knockout or home and away knockout competition. Um, instead of, I believe it's, you have to win right now 13 matches to become the UEFA Champions League winner. You would need to win 11 um, home and away. So really it would not change the schedule at all, but you would play whoever you're drawn against. And then we would redraw each round and it would basically just be a true competition of the champions of Europe, a representative and representing kind of all of the member nations. And you would get to see, I think a much cooler story and experience. And I think there would be a lot more jeopardy. Whereas right now with the way the group stage is set up, it's mostly the same teams that get through. Yeah. I, I absolutely love this. Uh, yeah. I think it's less likely to happen than my idea. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing a, this is a fantasy podcast, is it not? Straight knockout, yeah. of course. It's how it should be. I mean, there's the old some European Cup group stages. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a trade off the current system to stop a Super League anyway. Uh, Andrew, what's your thoughts on? And there's got to be other levels of European football, of course. So, would you keep the Europa? Would you would you have Europa League and, and take the yep. league out? Obviously. Would you have knockouts as well at lower levels so that there are yep. plenty of teams in Europe? I don't know if I missed you saying that earlier, sorry. As no, just... so basically what you would do, so uh, March Madness, in addition to the main tournament, there is something called the NIT, which is like the next level of tournament down. And so that would just become what is now the Europa League. And so you would take the second place teams in every league yeah. and they would slot in there. And the conference league would be the third place teams and kind of follow that. Process or like and that way, runners up in cup competitions and stuff like yep. that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah really you cool. just slot people in, and then, I mean, one, I think not only is that going to widen and also spread the income across Europe, because I think one of the biggest issues with the way the Champions League is structured is that if you are a team like Celtic or um, Ajax, you have such a competitive advantage over the rest of your domestic competition because you are the only ones competing in these competitions and the smaller nations have no chance of ever keeping up because they're never in it. Well, if every nation, their champion goes in to the top and then the, the next tier, the second place team, so on, you're going to see, I think a better competitive balance and it's going to make the race to finish in the top three in your domestic league a lot more important um, because you aren't going to get countries like England or Spain or, Germany where, oh, well, you know, as long as we place like top three or four, like we're going to get that Champions League group stage money and that's, you know, good enough for us. So, how sorry, just to repeat, how many, so the Champions, well, it won't be called the Champions League, the, I don't know, uh, how many are in it when it begins? 64. 64. And it's straight there knockout 50, with, with 64. Yeah. 
Right. Well, so home and away, straight knockout, but yeah. Home and away as well. So not like... I mean, the reason the FA Cup is... You know, the third round as well is one of the best best spectacles so of the I, season. I thought about it's doing because just an the, open draw, yeah. basically. No seeding. Anyone can get anyone. That's how yeah. cup football should be. But of course, so it's I, not home yeah. and away either, so... I went with home and away because otherwise you would only have like seven matches to win. And I, yeah. I think that could be incredibly unfair to fans in the sense of yeah, if you just happen to draw away the entire time, it, you know, you could be putting a lot of onus on certain fans to have to pay a lot of money. Whereas it's home and away. I think you are maybe a giving a little bit more advantage to smaller teams that would not be able to send um, fans and you're giving those smaller teams the opportunity to make money off of the big match against. I mean, I have no idea who won the Liechtenstein League uh, last year, but oh, okay. uh, I imagine they would be pretty excited if, say, a Real Madrid or a Manchester City had to come to play at their stadium. Yeah, I still think there's a small issue, perhaps I'm not an expert on this, the financial discrepancies that could still it could create in leagues if because if you know. Because if only one team's getting into a lucrative competition, they can just further strengthen and strengthen. I'd, I absolutely love the idea. Again, it will never happen. Uh, but, <laughs> and I'd love it, in, like, kind of linked to mine a bit, take away the riches as well of the Champions League. Yep. So it isn't so ridiculously lucrative to be in it. And, yeah, I don't have much of a problem with that. Uh, Joe, gets your vote, does it? 100% and it stems back to what I was saying to your initial idea, I'm all for competitive balance and um, whilst you can never have a, a purely competitive sport where there's some sort of monetary gain involved, I think this is pretty much as, as good as it's going to get and it's a heart back to the original European Cup where it's the battle of the best you know, you, you're, on, you're there on merit and it's ultimately shit or bust isn't it <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean, and that's what sport should be about. Excellent well, shall we move on? Because, yeah, I think we're thumbs up for that one. Uh, Joe, how about you give us your first choice? So my first one uh, is in relation to the dreaded VAR. Uh, it was going to make uh, an appearance at some point. Now, I, I am for VAR. I think when it's when it's used properly, it is, um, it is a tool for good in the sport. But I think where there's, there's a problem is, uh, is, is obviously how it's operated and by the, the people's... Um, perception of of the game's rules who are operating the technology so i believe that when var comes into use um i was trying to think of, of a of a relevant time frame but for argument's sake and time's sake we'll say there'll be a two minute clock to essentially use the technology so for example if the referee is given a, a decision on the pitch and it's really close for a penalty or something similar and the var are taking past two three minutes um, to to make a final decision on it, the clock will start from when VAR becomes involved. If they're unable to ascertain what the correct decision is by the end of those two minutes, it goes down to the referee's decision on the pitch. Um, and the same would essentially. I mean, you could vary that the, the actual clock and the time frame for different decisions, um, but it would be the same across the board. Uh, so, for example, it would also, in my opinion. Um, make referees more confident in their own decision making and stop offering what seems to be becoming a growing trend certainly in the Premier League of, of a cop-out um, where 
refs are, are letting things go, I think, um, in the hope of, of the VAR interfering and stepping in. Or alternatively, the VAR is overturning what seem pretty solid on-pitch decisions for minor infringements. So that would be my first initial suggestion. Nothing too groundbreaking, but something that I think would make the games run smoothly, certainly for fans in the stadium too. It's the first of two VAR things. So, well, I think offside related to this that Andrew will come to later. I think I generally agree as well. Andrew, your thoughts? Uh, there's probably some downside to this that if it was tried, I haven't thought of here. Uh, but basically, what and I fully agree with Joe on this, when they're endlessly trying to draw lines and getting nowhere for minute after minute after minute, then as far as I'm concerned, as Joe's hinted at, you've got your decision there. You don't know. If it's not, it's not clear... Uh, you stick with the original decision. I think I'm pretty fine with that. I think because it's part of it, the long delays in VR absolutely go against the whole point of it. So, are you in favor of it? Yeah. Um, I don't know if the time limit is the way I would solve this. I've thought about this a lot because as an American, you know, we have had instant replay, and, you know, in the NFL, you can challenge a certain number of calls and, if it's, I mean, a similar standard, basically, if there's evidence to overturn the call, um, then it will. But if it's, you know, not clear that the call on the field was wrong, that stands. Um, the, the one thing I have thought of a lot is I think the consistency issue with VAR is the problem because the point was to be consistent. But if each match has a different VAR ref, that doesn't make sense. To me, I think the best way you could solve VAR is to have basically a team of VAR refs who will cover every match the entire season from a centralized location in London or wherever. And they're just watching all the camera angles. And then they, because they are going to be looking at every, you know, kind of call, I think you get to a more consistent result. But I do think having that time limit as well on these close calls, because... I think part of it is referees in the Premier League and in football are not used to having this tool the way that in the NFL it has been around so long that they are relying on it in a way that I don't think is right to Joe's point of just like saying, oh, well, if I miss something, they'll cover it. It's like, no, you still need to make that call. And if you were wrong, VAR will let you know. But you shouldn't Mm. hesitate on making a call just because, well, maybe they'll, you know, be able to get a better angle of it upstairs. Yeah. Uh, my issue of consistency is different in that it relates to overturning the ref and clearing obvious, which means same incident, even if you had the same VAR, could have different outcomes correctly under how it's applied VAR because of the decision the referee made on the pitch at the time was different. Right. The same thing happening in two games should always have the same outcome for me. Yep. Uh, and it can't have under the current system because... You, you mean like the, uh, the, the WWE-style tackle on Maguire and Kane against Iran and uh, yeah. then John Stone somehow giving away a penalty for lightly yeah. touching a player's shirt at the end? Well, that's within the same game, yeah. But again, yeah, yeah no, that, that doesn't even count as an example because on both occasions, a penalty wasn't, over, wasn't given. So I'm absolutely astonished why... It was overturned. The one that Stone, Stones gave away. It should right. Have been well, that's, but that's what I'm saying of, of VAR to me is like I, yeah. I think it's because of the way that it is used. Um, 
that it's just you're you're not getting consistent outcomes on both sides because yeah. of how they view it. No, but the situation I mean is this: there is a, a there's a type of tackle or incident or perhaps handball where if the referee gives it, VAR will not overturn it because that's that's the levels they've set it at. Whereas if he doesn't give it, it won't overturn it either. It'll always go with the referee's initial decision. And that's not right because it should just give the right decision. The same, the handball right. should always be the same thing. So inconsistency is a big issue. I do think, I think the time limit can be part of that, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I don't know what it is, but when the, like the, you know, I think what fans hate and what Joe's, you know, really picked up on here. This absolute microscope of decisions is just like putting a microscope on, forensically looking at stuff. It's like, this is not what VAR's for. This is to get, this is to choose correct offsides and to, and to get rid of big mistakes, you know, like really clear yeah. ones that can make, be so important. So, and just to add a final thing, I'm not a fan of slow-mo as well. Slow motion mm-hmm. on tackles. Yes. Totally inaccurate. I think the only outside. way that it should be used is for determining if there is contact. Yeah, yeah. Either for a penalty or a um, handball, but not for something like violent conduct. That watch right? Because you just watch it yeah. at normal speed. You should be able to work out from them what violent conduct is. Not slow it down and see where they connect. You should be able to see all this at normal speed. Yeah. You can see the motivation of the player can see how much danger the other player's been put in. Why do you need to slow it down? So, I, And I don't want to get us down too much in VAR, but I will say after attending the uh, the Fulham match, which was my first in-person Premier League match in almost a decade, I the, the experience for in-stadium fans for VAR is insane. And I think one of the biggest changes that could be made that would help is in America, if there is a kind of a challenge and they go to the monitor to look at it there is a on the field explanation by the referee in the stadium and on the broadcast where they have to explain and basically defend the decision whether the call on the field stands or they are overturning it yeah mic'd up referees would be great but they also have to yeah. have the respect not to be from the players i I don't think football fans are trusted. <laughs> I think they'll think they'll riot if they show incidents on the big screen. So the ones that yeah. are watching the match live are the ones that are most in the dark about what's going on. But the end of that Fulham game just proves the previous point for me. The I, I spoke to Chris about this, about the penalty on Kevin De Bruyne. It was a penalty. If the referee had not given it at the time, VAR would not have overruled that. Absolutely oh, 100%. sure of that. That's not right. It's either a penalty or it isn't. And that's all I want from VAIs is we get the right decisions. So, yes, there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, tinkering to do. I, honestly, I'm at the point after the Carabao Cup game against Chelsea that had no VAR. It was felt so <laughs> refreshing. There was nothing controversial in that game, so it's easy. But I really am at the point where I'd get rid of it. But that's... That is a uh, with semi-automated offsides coming. Uh, perhaps there is a way it can work better in the future, but we will see. That's a discussion for another time. So, uh, right, should I do my second one? It's very vague. You shall. <laughs> it is very vague. I'm intrigued. Uh, yeah, I would basically. I don't know how to phrase this. 
I think too many penalties are given. So that's my starting point. And the current World Cup is not helping with my my anxiety over this, considering what we've just discussed about uh, John Stone's penalty. I think the Argentina one, I've not seen many replays of that. There's the clamping down now, aren't they, on shirt pulling and everything and blocking. And, you mm-hmm. know, I could see, I could see maybe if they keep doing that, eventually players will learn and a number of penalties will come down. But it's not just about the World Cup, this. A penalty, I think, gives you an average of 80% chance of scoring a goal. I think too many are given and too many games are decided by penalties rather than open play set piece or just football skill in a way by what can be considered minor incidents I think there's some reform is needed and firstly crazy thought why is a penalty area the size it is can anyone tell me that is it just because it's always been that size I mean, have you ever given it any thought, or was it yeah. just me? Well, so I was going to say, um, Tifo Football just put out a um, book that talks about a lot of these things. Like, why are there 11 players on the field? Because at one point, someone decided that was the number of players. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. we've stayed with it forever. And I'm, I, I'm quite confident that that is probably the same thing on the, the size of the penalty area. Um, but yeah, no, it, I, I agree with you entirely. Howard, I mean, we talked about this when we met up in, in Manchester and, you know, John had the suggestion of, you know, if it actually is denying a shot or it's a handball that stops the ball from going on target, yeah, that should probably be a penalty. But if a player has their, you know, back to goal, yeah, it, it, just give them an indirect free kick or a direct free kick, either way. Yeah, indir- indirects have disappeared out of the game quite a lot, haven't they? I'm sure they yeah. exist, but there's not. Basically, the end of my point was around handballs more than anything. So yeah. handballs are absolutely shriek. I don't know why they're just shriek. I know you can't control a ball in the middle of the pitch with one, uh, but honestly, I just think we have to be a lot more forgiving of of balls hitting arms and hands in the penalty area. It's just ridiculous how... And now, now, it's, you know, we saw in that Denmark game, it was he went to the screen and he disallowed it, I think, because of an earlier push. But they yep. can be given now if it deflects onto an arm. Now, of course, if that player puts it out and deliberately pats it down to control the ball, I'm fine with the penalty being given. They stop it on the line. If it's going towards the goal, as you've said, as John said, fine. But we just give far too many penalties for handballs that are just innocuous and maybe just look at where the ball was going and whether that stopped a goal or yep. a very or a goal scoring opportunity. I just think we need fewer penalties in the game and let actual pure football decide games more. Of course, there's a skill and a psychology and an absolute fascination about penalties themselves. I don't want them eradicated. I just feel, with VAR now as well, I don't know, maybe the stats don't back me up, uh, but I just feel more and more penalties happening just dilutes the game for me. Joe, any thoughts? It's a real... um... I was just trying to d- dig it out why the penalty area is indeed so big. Real chicken and egg question. <laughs> <laughs> Never even can't, thought can't about it. Have so phases. It. it needs phases. Why is it square? Yeah, why is it? Th- I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. I mean, the goalkeeping union would be absolutely horrified that you've even brought this into the public sphere, <laughs> this question. It's one of the game's great secrets, isn't it? But yeah, interesting one. I like I it. Mean, 
Coming off, see other sports, hockey got rid of offsides, it has penalty corners. There's a hundred ways to do it, but actually changing that much would just frazzle everyone's brain, I think. But yeah, it, there's no right answer really. Maybe it is the right size of penalty area, but if you've got an 80% chance of scoring a goal, then how far away from the goal should... The penalty should, uh, be. Yeah, a foul be punished with that penalty kick. I'm just not sure it's the right shape or size, but I guess it's an impossible argument to define, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's I an intriguing one, for sure. Yes. But how do you feel about handballs? Is it just me that... Uh, I've been going on about it for years, to be honest. So. I feel... I'm not going to lie, I'm a massive hypocrite. When they go against my team, I'm furious. But when there's a slight <laughs> touch of a hand in the box, I'm screaming for a penalty uh, when it happens for us. Um, but, yeah, if, if if you're playing, it certainly favours the attacking player, I feel. If you're playing and you're defending really well and the ball ends up hitting you know, your hand when the reality is you just you position your body to defend a situation as you've been taught and it ends up hitting your hand through no fault of your own yeah. and you end up losing a game because of it after defending well for 90 minutes it's uh, excruciatingly painful isn't it but it's just I think there's a heightened sense of it at the moment as well since VAR's coming I think there was a game when it first came in when Tottenham Newcastle I don't know if you remember that game um, where the, they've changed the rule since but the Tottenham defender literally went up with his hands behind his his back kind of twisted and the ball still hit one of his hands uh, so they gave the penalty and it was like the first time Newcastle had come out of their, their, their shell in the entire game so yeah, yeah it, no, it's just defenders don't defend anymore either they just run around with their hands behind their back yeah looking very block. odd just let's have some proper defending in the penalty area because you're not absolutely petrified that any touch or or the ball hitting anywhere, you know, hand otherwise, is going to give away a, a near certain goal. So, well, maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe the point is football isn't fair, sport isn't fair, and this part of pure bad luck <laughs> losing a game is just, it's just part of it. I think deflections are the one, aren't they, with handball? I think if it's um, the ball changes trajectory violently, um, yeah, you literally have no chance to, to amend your body position. It seems. Very unfair. It also feels like people just never think through the fact that in order to run at high speed, you kind of, you know, have to have your arms swinging wildly. Yeah. Yeah. Or to jump. Yeah. Yeah. Natural position. I mean, people who have decided natural position have probably never jumped or played a game of football in their life. So, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. That's me done with my crazy ideas for solving, for uh, making football better. Joe, I think. No, no, it's Andrew wants it alphabetical order. Andrew, it's on to yours, and I think, I think uh, VAR comes into this in some respects. Anyway, yeah. So VAR doesn't come in from the aspect of I'm changing VAR, but so this is largely it's an opinion I've had, but I felt like the uh, offside that was given against um, Ecuador in the opening match against uh, Qatar. was the like it explained why i have an issue with how the offside law is written once you have the ability to scientifically realize exactly where players are when the play happens because technically that player was offside yeah under the current laws of the game but there was no aspect of how that player was positioned 
that was actually giving an advantage to Ecuador that, in my opinion, leads to you needing to rule out that goal because there was an unfair advantage being given to Ecuador. So while Howard wants to make defenders' lives easier, I'm going to make them slightly harder. And essentially, <laughs> my, my rule change would be to roughly adopt how offsides, as it's called in hockey, works, which is in hockey, there are three zones. And if you are in the attacking zone... Hang on, hang on. You're not talking... You're talking ice hockey, aren't you? So yeah, sorry, ice hockey. I forget <laughs> you guys call field hockey, field hockey. Sorry. <laughs> so, Please continue. Yes. Yeah, there's, you, no, there's no offside in hockey. Field hockey, yeah. Right. So in so. ice... Yeah, in ice hockey, there's the defensive zone, the neutral zone, and the attacking zone. And they're def- the, divided by these blue lines. You are offside in ice hockey if before the puck crosses the blue line, both of a uh, player's skates completely cross the blue line before the puck does. So to adapt that to football, the only thing that matters are players' feet. And if both of the players' feet are past the offside line as it's currently drawn, which would be any part of the defenders, you are offside. If... Any part of a player's foot is still behind the line. You are not offside. It is a goal. It stands. We move on. There is zero reason when we now, particularly with semi-automated VAR, where they're using all these cameras, they can draw it. It works so well. We do not need to care if someone's, oh, the tip of their toe is a millimeter across the line because the law was not written with that ability to precisely measure in mind. It was written to... If, it, if a ref sees it and it looks like someone was gaining advantage, fine. But now that we have these precise measurements, just measure from their feet, move on. And if there is a, a slight advantage given to attackers with this rule, I'm fine with that because it means more goals get scored, which is going to make games more exciting. Um, and I think it just solves the problem of right now where goals get ruled out and everyone's like, okay, fine, they were technically offside, but where was the advantage? Why would any of us care? I think, yeah, this is all very pleasant. I think I generally agree with you. Uh, I'd love to rip into you and say, no, that's absolute nonsense, and this is why. Uh, I Basically, what's the point of offside? It's to stop the attacker getting an advantage. Mm-hmm. If you're leaning forward slightly and your shoulders yep. above, you're not gaining an advantage. I think offside should be done by feet. Absolutely done by yep. feet. If their feet, if the attacker's foot... Uh, for me, it's just any f- part of their foot is further forward than the defender's feet, then fair enough. With the small, you know, the lines must be separate if it's like millimetres. There's always got to be a line, and that'll always, people always argue over that. It should only be done against feet if the feet is what they then use. The only change I would say is if they're leaning forward and end up heading it, they are kind of gaining an advantage by leaning forward. So if they then use your their head, you could say the leaning gained them an advantage. But but see, to me, the issue with that is then you're actually uh, disadvantaging taller players who, if they were shorter and running in that same position, they would not be offside. But because they are taller, which is a natural advantage they have that has nothing to do with like the game state, 
it, to me, that rule, like, I think just drawing it from the feet is the only thing that should matter. Yeah. And Fine with the that. slight you, advantage of leaning. You have to be leaning. consistent as well. So yeah. you can't say, well, they then headed it, so we'll use that. I think it, yeah. feet is fine for me, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like a knee or something. It's just ridiculous. What, what, what does it matter that that knee was ahead of someone? So, yeah, yeah. Joe, do you agree? See, I'm, I'm. Whilst I agree with the sentiment of 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 the change, I think the problem is once you, and I know we're football gods here, um, but once you introduce VAR and technology to offside, the the issue you get is. Anything that can be determined as a body part you could use to score with, it becomes scrutinised to the point where you can start, as we see now, disallowing goals for minor infringements like a toenail or a kneecap being above. Um, For me, I I don't know how you would ever square this off now that technology's been introduced, but I would have, like we used to have an unwritten rule where, say... An attacking player has a slightest of edge um, and a freeze frame. I would still allow the the goal to stand, um, but I just don't know how you you get round it once the technology's been implemented, because the defending team who's on the end of it are always going to say, "Well, by the letter of the law, it's offside." But I do think you make a good point, Andrew, when you say that's not how the the law was initially meant to be implemented when it was written it was about as Howard also said stopping players getting a clear advantage ahead of the defending team but it's yep. a really and tough to one. me the, the, yeah the issue for me is now that we can so precisely measure the idea of the clear advantage I think needs to be what guides the spirit and the like wording of the rule rather than have they gained any theoretical advantage at all which is how I think it had to be defined back before you know, I think even this semi-automated VAR is an entirely different level of ability to precisely measure because the amount of cameras they have and the tracker on the ball, they really can now tell you exactly where things are. Um, and it just, to me... It, unless multi- you officially... Sorry to interrupt you, Andre. Unless you officially change the rule in writing where you say the attacker player can have a certain element uh, of goodwill and VAR can only be used on an offside decision where the referee's clearly made a mistake or the linesman's clearly made a mistake and the player was offside. So then See, VAR I, I would like to not... Play. I would like to eliminate as many quote-unquote clear and obvious calls that uh, we make because I don't think any of them are ever clear and obvious. Um, I just... I, my thought on it is is that if you... Like, it is a objectively good thing to use VAR to make an objective call on offside. The problem is, is I mean, so many of the goals that were disallowed in the Argentina-Saudi Arabia game, no one would have complained if those had gone in and had not been ruled out. And the only reason they were ruled out is because now we have the ability to precisely measure in a way that does not comport with the way the rule was intended to be used. Yeah, And so agreed. if you... If you basically allow there to be a element of advantage that attackers can have, and you just say we're measuring from the feet, and whether it is mine, where unless both feet are fully off, or you just for Howard say if it's anything off, I just I don't like the idea of like measuring from the foot and a little bit is off because to me that still is not following the spirit of the rule, and I don't think technically offside matters as much as does anyone look at that goal and feel like yeah that was offside and 
Like that shouldn't be allowed to stand. Um, yeah. Because no one thought that in the Qatar Ecuador game, no one thought a couple of those goals in the Argentina Saudi Arabia game were like truly offside. And so, if they're being ruled out, it means there's a problem with the rule, not the technology. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, yeah, I've seen someone say any part of the attacker's body can be on sides, but that doesn't work. That's going too far the other way for me because you, yep. yeah. you can get huge discrepancy. You know, you can have part of the body's like four or five feet if they're leaning yeah, ahead of the defender. So that don't work for me. Feet is what you move with, what you what you walk and run with, and that's how you get towards goal. And if they're not ahead of a opposition defender, how can you be gaining an advantage at the point? the ball is passed I'm fully on board with that one see we've already pretty much uh, made the footballing world a better place uh, Joe you've got the final choice what is it going to be uh, my, my final one is something that's kind of been in the public sphere of, of you know since the Super League fiasco and that would be that in my ideal um, perfect football world um, I would have a situation where it's written into any club ownership that a fan representative will be sat on the board of every club and will essentially uh, be entitled to a golden share, which means despite the fact the fan representative may not be the controlling um, shareholder of the club, anything that impacts the club's intellectual property, such as uh, a club's badge, a club's colours, anything directly linked to the cultural history of a football club. You know, these clubs are 120 plus years old across our country, as an example, um, such as a stadium move or the renaming of a stadium or you get the general gist where I'm going. Uh, so be subject to uh, approval by said fan representative who will then take the proposition from the board who say we want to change the badge, we want to change the name of the stadium, we want to move to a new stadium. He would take it to a forum um, whereby the club representative would then put it to a vote amongst the club's fans. Uh, obviously, if it's something that the, the major shareholders don't want in the public yet, it could be done privately. Uh, and if it doesn't pass, then the fan representative has the opportunity to veto said proposal. I mean, an example I'm thinking of is, you know, when we've seen breakaways over the years, uh, some of them successful like the Premier League, others not Super League, blatant money grabs. Those could be stopped in the tracks early on um, at the stage when, you know, all these people were meeting in shady locations around the world, uh, these businessmen. Um, the club's uh, reputations could be safeguarded by the people that ultimately will be there when these people are long gone. Uh, and they were there before they came. Um, so that would be something. I know it's very idealistic and probably not feasible. but Most of the show has been, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> something I'd like to see implemented. Uh, and, you know, I just think to examples like when Hull City wanted to change the name to the Hull Tigers and um, who was it that changed the colours? Was it Cardiff? Uh, changed to red. Yeah. Stuff like that. Salford, just... Salford City did, did not. Yeah. And I mean, even if it's something that ultimately benefits the club, as long as it goes to a fan representative uh, to put amongst the, the the key shareholders of any football club, in my view, the supporters, um, to pass it, that is how I would uh, had, change fan, the game. Had fan representatives before, of course, and we'll have them again. I think the logistics. I've got a couple of issues with the logistics of how this would play out because. Uh, but Andrew, what are your thoughts first? 
So well, I we, actually really. So like, I just say before, yeah, you know, on British viewpoint, our fit and proper test as yeah, uh, people will say it's useless because of city and having you know billionaire owners, but it really falls down the fit and proper test in this country because of asset stripping at lower. Yeah, you know, when teams actually stop existing, that's the the biggest yep. issue of all, of course, and like Berry, for example. Uh, it's because of asset stripping and owners. The or Dar- test, look at Darby. Yeah, not stopping that... what owners do, basically. So there's a lot of merit to actually uh, selling off assets, uh, selling off grounds, and uh, loads of shady stuff that having someone there that can stop you doing it legally is a great idea. Uh, but yeah, your thoughts uh, before I say a bit more. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, th- I think not only is it current owners that do asset stripping, um, but you also have issues of where uh, Darby had that crypto um, like transportation dude who said he was going to buy the club and the administrators were like, yeah, sure. Well, you know, we'll make you the preferred bidder because you made this payment and then ended up kind of almost screwing Darby over because they weren't really looking into this guy that anyone, you know, um, I don't know if anyone listens to the uh, price of football, but like great podcast and, and Kieran McGuire was saying like, this guy is known to be a shady individual. Like why, why are we giving him kind of this credit and ability to be this preferred buyer? And I, you know, I, I think the idea of the fit and proper owners test is a good thing. I think it needs to be done by an independent organization and i think the fa largely is not truly independent and neither are the leagues um and so you know we could probably spend hours of how we would restructure that but i actually really like this idea and i think you know to some extent we see some version of this in the way that the chelsea uh pitch and the freehold and the turnstiles and the name are owned by a organization that no one person could ever get control of and the fans are then able to kind of control. I mean, as as much as Todd Bowley has these ideas of how he wants to change things and, you know, the club has said we need to leave Stamford Bridge and we're going to build a new stadium because we need to get to 60,000 feet so we can be a, you know, Class A stadium for UEFA and host these big events. They can only do all that and continue to be Chelsea Football Club if that organization is on board. And I think that's a really, really good thing. Um and I think to your point, Howard, about how, well, you know, there are some people that look at City and say that they, you know, they're a reason why you should want fan ownership. But I think as as fans, most of us would say, look, there may be issues with the country and the regime that our ownership is attached to. But as far as they are as in terms of ownership of the club, I mean, having not been to the Etihad in a decade, almost a decade until this trip that we went on. I was blown away at the investment and the development around the stadium, largely spurred by the ownership, the, the co-op music stadium that they're building is going to be, you know, awesome. The, and even things is just going back to a badge that I think some, you know, some people look at, Oh, it's a rebrand and more modern, but it's like, actually the, the new badge is returning to something that has meaning and value to the fans and wasn't just kind of a marketing ploy. And so stars on it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so I yeah, I think there are things that you know, I we all would say we would not have approved if we were this group of fans that had a a veto. Um, you know, things like ticket prices, the Super League, 
those are all good things. But I think that, you know, the the real issue are these owners like the Glazers, like, um, you know, even even Wolves who have done really well as a club, you know, they've essentially sold their soul to Jorge Mendez and have become a part of his Portuguese player uh, assembly line where he churns out these agent fees and they buy these players and they're indebted to him, which I'm sure Wolves fans, you know, some are like, well, it's helped us grow and get back to the Premier League. But at the same time, like we've seen the drawbacks as well. And so I, I do think there is value in ensuring that certain aspects of football clubs cannot be changed without the buy-in of the fans. Um, I would say that I would like to see that not just be a local match-going fans, because I think that there are concerns of overseas fans that are as important to consider and as um, helpful as well. And so I think having some kind of fan council that represents your, you know, fan base in totality, you know, men and women, children, families, season ticket holders for 40 years to the new fans are all important. That's my logistical issue. First of all, I don't want fans owning clubs. They're all, we're all idiots. We probably have sacked... Truth. We just sacked Pep Guardiola four years ago and replaced him with Sam Allardyce. So let's leave it. To, you know, there's been some missteps by uh, you know, Cheeky and Farad and, uh, and Pep himself, of course. But, you know, generally they know how to run big organisations on the whole. Super League, sign up, except, you know, apart... Joe, I was just going to say, the the issue for me, and I, I don't disagree with this, the issue in the logistics is, can a fan represent, can one person represent fans, basically? How do, how do we elect this fan? Whose views is he representing? Because a fan base never agrees on anything, <laughs> anything at all. And... Who is the forum that they go to, basically? Because is it season ticket holders? Is it anyone who can become a member? Could it be uh, corrupted that way by people who vote? I just think logistically having a fan on the board has always had that little problem. As you've seen, the city reps now, The have you seen, you know, you'd, would you want to be a city rep and go having meetings with a club? Because whatever you do, someone is going to be slagging you off for how you represented the fans and the views you brought to the club. And I think that's the only problematic side of this for me. Yeah, well, this is the joy in being one of the gods of football for an hour. I don't need to worry about the logistics. I'll just give you the idea and then you take it away. If it goes badly wrong, as a god of football, I can say it was never my idea in the first place. So, <laughs> no, that's doesn't the work idea. like well, <laughs> Joe, Joe, I am going to hold you to this, though, that as the god of football, you do have to pick... The fan representative, the first one. Um, well, if, if replacing. Well, um, I'll tell you what. If any of that food you were discussing earlier is on offer, it could well be you, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think uh, the way I would probably approach it would be. It would almost be like a mini board within the board. So I would try and, and have a representative of each major element of. I know it's difficult and it would probably take a whole podcast of its own to figure out how you'd make it up, but I would have a season ticket representative, uh, holder representative. I would have um, an international fan representative. I would have 
um, you know, representatives for fans over a certain age category, yeah, however you want to do disabilities. it. Yeah, we've had, we have yeah. reps with them. They just don't have the power, do they, to, turn, yeah, yep. to, to veto. Yeah, and then they would take a vote uh, amongst members, um, you know, however you want to define a membership group. And, and just be democratic and whether it's 51, 49% or whatever it is, whatever the decision is, the decision is, and, and bear in mind this is only relating to things I would consider of cultural uh, value to a club, like the yeah. stuff you've just been discussing, uh, and whatever the vote is, um, ultimately has the ultimate say on the motion brought to them by the board. So that is initially how I would approach it, but obviously... In reality, it would probably be much more difficult than that. Uh, yeah, two things to wrap up then. Uh, I think we can both agree Thanksgiving and Christmas approaching that turkey is one of the polar meats. Yeah, Andrew? Strongly <laughs> How disagree. Dare you? How dare you? No, no. Here, so here's the issue people think it's one of the poor meats because people do not know how to cook it properly. Uh, well, I'm restricted because my family has a dairy intolerance, so there'll be no sticking butter garlic butter under the skin for me i just have to mm. put it in an oven upside down for an hour then back on top so secondly ginger wigs uh, replied to us on twitter with an article, i saw that yeah that yeah. explains you, why, why the penalty area is the size it is i've not had a chance to read it but i will be uh, doing it so. essentially rotates back to the fact that most uh pitches uh in the original days were old cricket pitches which um immediately makes me want to change the size of the penalty box because uh, let's remove all influence of that godforsaken sport from football. Oh, how dare <laughs> you? The, the, joy, <laughs> the joy of a five-day sport that can end in a draw is something Americans are missing out on big time. So, And surely if you stick in the adverts into the Super Bowl, it lasts almost as long anyway, does it not? So, uh, Yeah, I guess we could have a whole separate conversation on why pitches are the length they are. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, we'd probably best leave it. It works quite well. Uh, I just think yep. there could be a bit of tweaking. I just, I think penalties should be a bit better. But I think between us, we've, we've made the sport a better place. Uh, total fantasy, none of it's going to happen. Uh, apart yeah. from the VAR stuff, of course, is the stuff that can be changed. Fan representation is, of course, an option and could do uh, individual clubs, but probably not across the board. But some some good stuff in there. So, Andrew, Joe, thank you very much for coming on and talking about that. I really enjoyed it. No Cheers. problem. And thank yeah. you for everything you're doing today, Howard. You're doing a sterling job. No Top problem. Where, what are we? Nine hours in, so three to go. We've got loads of great con- content to come. Most of it coming from your side of the Atlantic Ocean, Andrew. So... Oh, oh, joy. I will say, if you're an American, um, just well, you've have all got this up on. Now, you, you, so, yeah. yeah. A, we're all up. But B, I will say, uh, please, as Americans, uh, if you aren't using a VPN to watch the World Cup, just have this on uh, instead of the horrendous commentary that is taking place during the World Cup because, oh boy. I've seen Fox Sports, is it? Or... Yep, Fox oh. Sports, who um, is basically entirely sponsored this World Cup with Qatari companies, which means, um, weirdly, there is no reference or mention to many of the controversies involving uh, said host. Uh, lovely stuff. Well, nice to um, have done a pod with you, by the way, Andrew. Yeah. 
first yeah. time. Cheers. Oh, well. Nice to yeah. meet you. Uh, uh, Joe, Andrew. Andrew, Joe. A bit late now, isn't it? Introducing you. Oh, we're already having um, Thanksgiving dinner together now. <laughs> I know, yeah. to yeah, I what time do you want us around tomorrow, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> I'll bring uh, you dinner's at 1 p.m. Yeah. Eastern time. Brilliant. So, we'll be there. there. We'll check in the we'll flights as we speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks to you both. Uh, and just Andrew Law can say is at least you haven't got Dion Dublin and John Hartson on co-commentary. <laughs> <laughs> every cloud and that's every cloud. So, yeah, thanks to you both. Uh, I'll speak to you soon uh, and we'll crack on with the content. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye now.